Hey, grab a seat. And as you grab a seat, get a Bible in front of you. If you need a Bible under a seat close by you, you will find a black Bible under there. Grab that. Turn it with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you are newer to navigating the Bible, inside that Bible under the seat, there's a table of contents. Find this book in that Bible called 1 Corinthians and get there with us this morning. Last Sunday, I left church and I ate a delicious grilled sandwich at my dining room table. And then our boys were napping. And so I made my way over to the couch for some Sunday afternoon relaxing, and um, I grabbed the remote, I flipped on the TV, and I started surfing through the channels, and I stopped on a Sunday afternoon infomercial. Now, if you stop on an infomercial, you need to go do something else with your life, but nevertheless, I sat there, and um, why I stopped on that is because I was waiting for a certain line. I knew I would hear, I knew it would come, and it didn't take uh, very many minutes at all before there it was. This will change your life. And the the dude, he was shouting it at me, right? Because the info, you got to shout that. And he was shouting, this will change your life. I'm like, what? What is it? What is it? Um, it, it, was, uh, it was an infomercial on buying rental properties. Um, and, and I sat there and I just said, okay, like, let's break this statement down. This will change my life. You know, I'm sure if I would have picked up the phone and called, which I did, No, I didn't, but um, my wife would have killed me. Um, I'm sure if I would have picked it up and bought into this whole thing, and maybe you make some money off it, and and maybe certain aspect of your life would look different. But a wholesale statement, this will change your life? In this kind of, um, this, this statement is something that we're so used to. It's, it's, it's plastered on advertisements. It's in many of the commercials we watch. It's a statement we hear people tell us as they're trying to um, get us involved in things they're really passionate about. This will change your life. But you and I both know this. Maybe we've bought into some of these things. Maybe we've known from the get-go that this statement, um, it never delivers It tends to always fall short. And thus, you should be really skeptical about the title you see on the top of today's message. What's that title say? News that will change your life. You should be conditioned by now to be very skeptical about seeing a title like that because we live in a culture that bombards us with that statement. But here's the deal. Why I think that statement has lost so much of its power is because it has been applied to messages and it's been applied to things that can never have the power to change our life. There is one message that's life-changing. There is one message that is completely life-transforming, and it's a message that we see come out of God's Word right here today. Um, We're going to just look at what God has to say about the one message that can change every single heart sitting in here. And now, if you're newer to the Bible... Um, As we turn our attention to studying it and reading it this morning, you have to understand something. The Bible is much easier to understand than um, we often think it is. Um, Once we get that we're opening to a book in the Bible, and this book has some context behind it, um, once we get that this portion of Scripture we're actually studying today is just a letter, 
It's a letter written by a guy named Paul. And if you don't know Paul's story, you're going to find out in this portion of the letter a little bit of what Paul's story is. And it's a letter he's writing to a group of Christians, to what's called a church in a certain city, the city of Corinth. And now, so you don't think that the Bible is just a story tale or fairy tales and made up places. Corinth was a city um, in modern day Greece. And Corinth was located on a narrow strip of land that separated the Adriatic Sea from the Aegean Sea. And its geographic location made Corinth a very, very popular city. It was a place that people would descend on from all different areas of the known world. And because they were coming from all different areas of the known world, you had all of these different religious thoughts and philosophies and philosophies on life. Uh, Corinth was actually a very popular place for traveling speakers. Uh, They would show up in Corinth, they would charge admission, and then they'd give a talk or a speech, what we would call today a motivational speech, on how you improve your life. Um, Corinth Corinth was, was a popular place in its day. Corinth, uh, there's something else about Corinth you got to understand. Um, and as you look at the ruins of the city of Corinth, you'll see um, behind the ruins here, um, the big kind of mountain-looking thing uh, called the Acropolis, the Acrocorinth. Um, Corinth was dominated by some temples to Greek gods, Greek goddesses. The temple that sat on top of the Acropolis there, that had to be a pretty important one, Right? The temple that sat on top of the Acropolis was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love, goddess of beauty, the goddess of pleasure. See, sex was the god of Corinth. Corinth was known in its day for its rampant wealth, for its beautiful artistry, and for its renegade sexuality. Corinth was crazy. Now, um, just so we all understand kind of the culture of this letter that was going back to the Christians in the city, does this describe at all any city we have in our own country? And that is Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas? Uh, If you watch the new commercials for Las Vegas, you'll see either a man or a woman, and they're traveling through all these different scenes that you might find in Las Vegas, and in each scene, they're kind of acting like a totally different person, and the commercial comes to an end, and it says something along the lines of this, uh, Vegas, come be yourself, or be whoever you want to be. And it's this message of come indulge, come do whatever you want, come and joy, and then go back to your normal life like no one will ever know. Listen, sin will find you out even in Las Vegas. But this is Corinth-esque. Now, Paul shows up one day, and he preaches. Remember, Corinth is used to traveling teachers. And so Paul comes in, and he's like, hey, I got something to teach. And they're like, great, teach. And he preaches this message the one message that actually has the power to transform lives. And there's a group of people, even in this culture of this city, who embrace the message. And they become Jesus followers. 
and a church starts there. Now, Paul leaves, and he goes and he starts other churches and other cities, and he catches word that there's some things going on in the church of Corinth. Um, the church of Corinth, because of the culture that surrounded it, it kept getting pulled back into the vortex of the ugliness of this culture. And so Paul here, and what we're studying today, he's writing a letter back to them. And he's saying there's some things going on in the church that should not be going on in the church. Listen, there's some jacked up stuff here is what Paul says. Really, it's in their Greek. It is, I promise. And Paul's writing a letter to say like this, back to a group of jacked up people in a jacked up city. And you know why I'm really thankful for that? Because I'm a jacked up person in a jacked up city today. And Paul's got to remind them of the message he brought to them. The message that actually has the power to transform lives. And now my question for us today is if this message can transform a group of Corinthians in a culture like that, don't you think this message has the same power to transform our lives in here as we sit here today? And uh, there's three groups of people we're just going to talk to today, and I hope these three groups kind of cover the breadth of the people that are here. First group is this. Those of you who walk in here today, and you walk in here knowing you're not a Christian, you, you're here on Easter because it's a family tradition or mom or grandma invited me here and out of respect for them, I'm here. But you're walking through these doors today and you know you're not a Christian. And, and frankly, you're like, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, second group of people that we want to talk to today is those of us who walk in here to celebrate the resurrected Jesus who are Christians. Uh, this message that we're going to be reminded of today is not just for non-Christians, it's very much for Christians today. And then we're going to talk to a third group of people, and those are those of you who come in here today, and you walk in these doors, and you, you walk in believing you're a Christian, but you're not. And if that's offensive to some of you, you just got to know my story is very much that. Grew up in a Christian home, spent most of my life believing I was good with Jesus when I was alienated from him and didn't know him at all. And the Lord opening my eyes to that at the age of 19. So three groups of people, and we're going to have a three-part conversation today. First part of the conversation is simply going to be this. We're going to acknowledge that there really is news that can change your life. In, culture, we in our culture, we have to establish that up front. That a lot of this news and messages, it cannot deliver but there really is a message that can change our life. Second part of the conversation is going to be this. we got to understand what this news is. Um, we can't just say that there's a message, there's news that can change our life. we got to understand what exactly is this news. What does it say? And then the third part of the conversation is this. we got to understand how this news can change your life. That's different from number one. Number one says there is news. Number three says, how does this apply to our life? What do we do with this? That's what we're talking about today. Pray with me. Let's ask for God's help as we study. God, come now. Lord, you know the simple prayer I've prayed all week. Overwhelm us with your presence. The preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, Lord. Like, we need your help. We need your help to understand what we are studying. God, your spirit has to reveal to a heart in here who doesn't know you that they need to know you and they need to surrender today. 
Lord, your spirit must be what uh, encourages and edifies the heart of the believer sitting in here as we study this awesome message of hope. Lord, your, only your spirit can reveal to one sitting here today who thinks they're good with you and they're not. God, overwhelm us with your presence right now. Most of all, Lord, get the preacher out of the way of the preaching. May your word be held up high on the platter for us to feast on today as you bring yourself glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Remember, this is a letter. And Paul's coming down into kind of the home stretch of the letter, and he's saying, here's what I need to remind you of. Now I would remind you, brothers... Of the, what's the word? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Just stop right there and let's acknowledge on your notes right here for the first time. There's good news that can change your life. And Paul says, I, I'm writing back to you. There's some things that need to get corrected in how you guys are living out here. And he says, I want to remind you of the message I brought. I need to remind you of this, he gives it a title. God gives it a title of this gospel. Gospel simply means this. Gospel simply means good news. So if you're not a Christian, you've ever heard someone say gospel, or can I share the gospel with you? What they're saying is there's a good news message that I want to tell you. There's a good news message that you need to hear. And Paul's saying, I need to remind you all of this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he says some important things about this gospel message, which you received... Past or present tense? Come on, we're in English class. Past or present tense? In which you stand, past or present? Very good. And, this one's a little trickier, and by which you are being saved. Present and kind of future, right? There's some really important, well, let me finish this out. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Um, let's speak to the three groups we said we're going to speak to here. Paul says, when I came to you, remember, I, I showed up in your city and I preached to you this message. I preached to you that what, what's called this gospel. And you received it. He's writing back to the group of Christians within Corinth, and he says, you guys received it. When I was up there saying, and you have sinned, and you've fallen short of God's standard, and you're, you deserve death for that, you need a Savior, you were the ones who said, yes, I do. I need a Savior. And you surrendered your life. You received this message. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the message we're talking about today is a message that demands a response. You will walk out of here today responding to it one way or the other. You will do what these Corinthians did and you will receive it. You will embrace it. Jesus will become Savior today. Or you will stiff arm him or you will say thanks but no thanks and you will go on with your life. But this is a message, non-Christians in the room, that demands a response. But then he says this, which you received, in which you, what? In which you, in which you stand. There's something about this message that isn't only for a time in the past. There's something about this message that is power for the present. Christians in the room, listen. 
The gospel is not a message that at one time saved us and then we set it on the shelf never to return to it. We come back to it daily to remind us that it's both the power to save us and the power to sanctify us. It's the power to make us more like Jesus. It's the daily reminder of my great need for him. Not that we need to be saved again, but this gospel must power the way we go about living the Christian life. It must be the reminder to us. It's in which we stand right now. And then he goes on to say, and by which you are being saved. It saved you the moment you embraced it. It's saving you, and it'll save you to that ultimate day when you'll stand in the perfect presence of Jesus. And then some scary words. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. What is up with this unless you believed in vain thing? Paul's saying, unless when I came to you, some of you said you embraced this Jesus thing, said you received it, made what kind of what we would call today a profession of faith, but then there's been no following after Jesus. there's been no evident change in what we say in Christian circles, the fruit of your life, meaning what your life is bearing out. There would be nothing that would say, yeah, I really have trusted Christ as Savior. He goes, "Unless, unless some of you believed in vain, which he would say is no belief at all. This third group in here, those of us who walk in the doors today who believe we know Jesus, but don't. This is a really important point for us. That there is a believing in vain, which is no belief at all. What does this look like? Uh, a couple examples from our current day. What, what it looks like for maybe some of us in here who grew up in a Christian home. Um, it's a really important for us to understand, those of us who grew up in a Christian home, that just because Jesus was our parents' personal Lord and Savior, that's not inherited to us. There must come a point in our life where we say, I see my sin and I see my need for a Savior and I'm repenting and I'm turning from that sin and I'm embracing Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, a statement that's really important for us to just correct and understand is, is when you often talk to people and they say, I've always been a Christian. Now, I know what people mean when they say that. They say, I grew, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know anything different. Um, the fact of the matter, theologically, is we haven't always been Christians. It's not inherited to us by birth. We must see our need for a Savior, and we must surrender to that Savior, and we must make him Lord and Master. Uh, Another thing that I think is important on this believing in vain thing, for some of us who walk in here today and we think we're Christians and we're not, um, and I want to be careful with this one because I don't want it to cause more confusion than it does clarity, and I might be a bit controversial in this one, but that's never stopped me in the past. Um, For those of you like me, who prayed a prayer at five years old, listen now, legitimate salvation can take place right there. I know many people that it has. We all hear that? Hear that? Some of you are in this room and you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior at a young age and the Spirit of God is bearing out the fruit in your life that show you that. Do not question that. My story was praying an insurance policy out of hell prayer 
but not wanting to embrace Jesus as master of my life. I wanted the insurance policy. I didn't want him as Lord. I wanted to be Lord still. Can I have the insurance when I be Lord? God, can we do it like that? And for the next 14 years, that's how I lived my life. And so I was a master. I was a master. I knew what I needed to look like on Sunday. I knew what I needed to say. I knew how I needed to look. I knew how I needed to act. But then I knew how to act like Brock was the master of his life throughout the rest of the week. I knew what that needed to look like after the football games on Friday. I knew, I knew all that. And it was at 19 years old. I'm going off to college, laying in a dorm room. Everything I've ever known is gone. And I went, yeah, he ain't Lord. I did all this Christian-y stuff, but there's never been surrender. And it was that moment in my life where surrender happened. And I got that following Jesus is not just an insurance policy out of one place. Following Jesus is both that and what we get, namely him. He is the great treasure. And he became Lord and he became Savior then. And so I just, in the culture in which we are on the south side of Indy, and a lot of us have grown up in the church and exposed to church, I just want to love us enough to stay. There's people in here who have believed in vain, and it's been no belief at all. And God's coming after our heart, like he did when I was 19, after 14 years of walking in this vain belief. Don't stiff arm that today. So all we've done with the first part of the conversation is we've said there is good news that can change our life. God's given this good news a title. He calls it gospel. Now, it's really important to, uh, this, this next part is really important. What is this message? We have not answered that question yet. What exactly is this message? Look at what Paul picks up here in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the highest priority, this is the, the greatest thing I have to say, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Look at all. Now, this is really important. He goes on and on and on about this point right here, his appearing. That he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Um, what is this good news message? I love the clarity in which Paul lays this out for us. In creedal form, boom, 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 boom. And the first boom is a big boom, and it's this one. That Jesus died for our sins. That Jesus died for our sins. Before this good news can get really good, it's got to get heavy in here. It's got to get heavy before it can get light. We have to understand our need before we see how the gospel remedy that, that, that need. We have to understand we are lost before we can understand how we get found. We have to understand we're wounded before the gospel can heal. And when Paul says, Jesus, 
Christ died for our sins, we have to understand something implied in that all of us have sinned. Sin simply means this. We have done things, thought things, motivations of our heart have all been things that God says not to do. And we have not done the things God says to do. We've missed the mark. That's literally what sin teaches. We've missed the mark God has said. And that's a problem. And part of the problem is by the very nature of who God is. God is holy. We sang about it. You are holy, holy. You want me to keep going? He's holy. He is so different than us. He is so without blemish. He's perfect in all of his ways. He creates humans and he creates them for a perfect relationship, perfect fellowship. We were not supposed to be separated from God. We, there wasn't supposed to be this chasm. That's why our heart cries out for a God and that's why we search our entire life trying to find this God until we meet Jesus. Because there wasn't supposed to be a separation, but sin entered the world. From the very first humans right down the line all the way to us. And we've all sinned against this holy God and listen, you know it and I know it. You're like, I don't know, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, you're not a good person. You're like, that, that offends me, I know, because culture shouts to us that we're good people and our moms back up the message. <laughs> and we're not. It's not just that we've done wrong things. It's that by our very nature and at the core of who we are, we are entirely wrong with God. You're like, this is heavy and it hurts. I know. The gospel must wound before it heals. But until we see the need, we can't see our need for a remedy of it. And so God says this is a problem. He says that there's a penalty. That there's a penalty for sin. And that penalty is death. It means what we deserve. What we deserve is to be separated from God forever that we don't deserve to be in relationship for it. God would be completely just to cast us off in no relationship with him for the rest of eternity. Enter some good news. Then Jesus steps in. And he says, yeah, I see Brock's sin. I see Brock's sin that he looks back on and cringes about. I see Brock's sin that has heaped so much shame and guilt on him. I see the seasons of his life. He wishes he had a do-over button for and could go back and wipe away. I see how his sin has hurt others. And guess what? I want to die for that. Jesus says, put it on me. I'll bear it. And he's done that for every soul in here. Look, 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 look. Look now, even for those things that the guilt and the shame are immensely heavy in your life, Jesus bore it on himself. And Paul says, here's this message. It starts with this. Christ died for our sins. 
And then he goes on and he says something interesting. He says, verse 4, that he was buried. Okay, this is really important. Um, Basically what Paul is saying here is reminding us that Christ died for our sins and he really died. Imagine that you're one of the Jesus followers there, you're a disciple, and you've been following after this teacher, this master, and you believe according to uh, what your understanding of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you believe he's going to set up and establish his kingdom and his rule and his reign on earth, and then you're watching him die a criminal's death on a cross, and I, I just wonder, are they sitting there nudging each other going, I bet now he's going to come down. I bet this is the part where the angels sweep in and he comes down and he just goes all Jesus all over this scene. That's not how it happened. They actually hear their master say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathes a last breath. And then just for good measure, they watch a spear go on his side removed from the cross, wrapped in burial cloths, laid in a tomb, stone rolled over, sealed, guard standing there. And his followers, literally, his followers' world is rocked. What do we do now? Paul's reminding us he died for our sins and he really died. This wasn't a David Blaine magic act thing. He was dead. You ready for this? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried. And then just just one little short phrase right after that. What's it say? That he was raised. No, no, you can't whisper that. That he was what? That he was raised. Then, from Friday to Sunday, there's this dead period, but then Sunday shows up, and and remember the guard standing there? He flees when the angels show up, and the, 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 the stone is rolled away, and the burial cloths that once wrapped them are now laying there, and Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, death gets to die. And you're like, this is the part in the whole Jesus. Like, I knew this one was coming today. That Jesus rose, right. This is the part in the whole Jesus thing that I just cannot reconcile with reality for you Christians. Paul knows that. Because look at the time he spends now on the fact that Jesus really did raise. Back to the scriptures. Verse 5, uh, verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we're celebrating on Easter. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still what? Go ask them. Why would he add that? Yeah, he's going, listen, I, you can think we're quacks, that's cool, like, you can think Peter's a quack for saying this. You can think I'm a quack for saying this. You can think that the 12 are like totally out of their mind to believe that Jesus rose for dead. But then he appeared to 500 at one time. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Hey, this dude said that you were at a place, you were at an event one time, there were like 500 people, and that Jesus showed up after he had died. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it's true. No, really, dude. Like, is that true? Yeah. 
yeah, I didn't believe it either. And then there he was. <laughs> he appeared to more than, and, and Paul's not done yet. He appeared to more than 500, um, um, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, dead, they've died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we'll get to that appearing to Paul there. But what is this message? Let me just summarize this for us in here. How does this apply? This was written a long time ago. How does this apply to us in here? What is the gospel message for us? That Jesus died. And he died for our sin. And he really died. And then three days later, he rose, and because he rose, there's, there's victory over death and sin, and there's the hope of victory over death and sin for us. Because of his resurrection, there's a hope for a resurrection for us as well. And then, and then he appeared. Like he substantiated that whole risen thing by appearing to people, not just all, the, all of us and kind of his close apostle circle. He appeared to people beyond that, substantiating that he has risen. Listen, this is a message that demands a response. This is a message that demands a response. We got to do something with this today. So there's good news that can change our life. What is this good news? We've just outlined it. Now the third part of the conversation, it's an important one. What does this mean for us? How, how does this change our life? And Paul is going to use his very own story now to talk about how does this change your life. Back to verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then Paul says something really odd. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Because Paul's going to tell us who he was. Because I persecuted the church of God. Who was Paul? Paul, pre-Jesus... Um, hated Jesus, and he hated everything about Jesus, and he hated anyone who claimed to follow Jesus. And he put, he put action to his hatred by seeing that Christians of the day were arrested. He would go door to door. You a Christian? You a, okay, yeah, yeah, you're gone. Come with me. But Paul was standing there when the first Christian died for being a Christian, and he stood there like this. You're like, so Paul wasn't a very religious guy. Then. No, Paul was a really religious guy. He thought he was doing this out of zeal for God, out of, out, of, out of zeal for his Jewish heritage. And then Paul's walking down the road one day, literally. Like, go read the story. Paul is walking down the road one day, risen Jesus, boom. Intercepts his path. And overnight, this man changes. Through a, through a season of where I began to study this faith before I could just finally like surrender to it. Um, I'd grown up being taught this story, but I'm like, how do we know this is real? I got some really smart PhD guys telling me it's not. What, what do I do with this? It was the Apostle Paul's testimony that drove the stake in the ground for me. How does this guy overnight, one of the most antagonistic haters of Jesus, overnight become into the greatest church planner and proponent of Jesus? Here it is. He tells us. He saw him. He appeared to him. 
And Paul is transformed from the man that he was into the greatest missionary the church has ever known. And he tells us how that transformation happened. Don't miss it. Verse 10, one very simple sentence. He says, so I, was, I persecuted the church of God. That's who I was. But now, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he says this word again. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul says, you want to know what happened? The grace of God overcame my heart in Jesus appearing to me. What is grace? Grace is this. It's God's free gift that we don't deserve. Some of you are going to meet Jesus this morning. In first service, people met Jesus. And one of the biggest hang-ups from you meeting Jesus today is for you to think that you have to do something to earn his favor. Grace is unearned favor of God. It is unmerited favor. It is God saying, yeah, yeah, no, no, you don't get it. I see you. I see you better than you see you. Yes, I've seen those thoughts in your head, and yes, I've seen the motives of your heart, and I've for sure seen all that you've done, and guess what? I love you the same. Come be a child. That's grace. And once the grace of God grips our heart and overwhelms our heart, the old us is gone, a new us resurrects. And Paul says, here's who I was. Here's what I was. Really simply, I was a persecutor of the church of God. In steps Jesus. And now by the grace of God, I am what I am. And all over this room right now is your version of that same story. Here's who I was. Right? How, how many of us in here could finish that sentence? Here's who I was. Here's who I was. In steps Jesus. And by the grace of God, here's who he's making me into. That is the testimony of every Jesus follower in here. Receiving the grace offered by Jesus. Here's the word. It transforms me from who I was to who God calls me to be. Don't miss that. Receiving the grace offered by Jesus. Remember right at the beginning, this was a message that demands a response. It is to be received. Jesus, death, and resurrection means I can have a death and resurrection as well. Jesus, death, and resurrection means you sitting here can have a death and resurrection as well. And you're like, what do I need to have a death for? That sounds violent. Oh, it is violent. It's the... It's the greatest kind of violent. It is the, the most transformative kind of violent when God steps into our life and says, old you is dead. That's the death we need to have today. Where I was going about in my story, in my, in my 
seemingly blind moral goodness, thinking I'm right with God, but I'm not. And God shows up at 19 and says, Brock, there needs to be a death today, and it's the death of the old you. Jesus' death and resurrection means I can have a death and resurrection as well. Where we die to the old us, And we're raised to life as a brand new person that Jesus has transformed. He has saved us out of our sin and he's imputed. It means he's given us his righteousness, his spirit dwelling inside of us. What used to matter to us doesn't matter anymore. The sin that used to dominate us is gone. That which held us has been loosened by God. That's the death and resurrection we're after today. The death to the old us, the raise to new life in Christ. That comes as we embrace the grace of God offered to us in Jesus.